Our sermon text this morning is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 12 through 21, which is page 362 of your pew Bible. The chronicler, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you that your eyes may be opened day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Here ends the reading. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do wonder how a God so great that the highest heavens could not contain you, how it is possible that you are present with us, how it is possible that you actually know us, know our names, know our lives. Yet we pray in faith, knowing that you've told us that where the body of the Lord, the church gathers, that he is present. So Jesus, may you speak through your word this morning. May it captivate our minds and captivate our hearts. Pray that I'll preach as clearly as I can. But we trust that your spirit is the one who has the power and to you will be the glory and the honor forever. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Well, the April 6, 1966 cover story of Time magazine was somewhat of a controversial issue. Uh, The title of that cover story was, Is God Dead? This was the first cover story for a Time magazine that only had text and not have pictures. Normally they're pictures. Um, This caused quite a controversy. What was interesting is, is the article, the cover story, was mostly interviewing a few kind of self-described radical liberal theologians. Um, it's one thing when someone else calls you radical, but these are men who self-describe as radical. Um, and it was this very arcane theological debate that was only happening on a few seminaries in the country. But all of a sudden, this very like arcane theological debate became national headlines, and people were talking about it. And there were some elite academics who were making predictions that we're moving into a new era in America, and as the generations progress in a generation or two, fewer and fewer people will believe in the existence of a God, and we'll kind of move into this kind of secular future. The ironic thing is, as much as the, and, and, and I mean, there were probably thousands of sermons the Sunday after April 6, 1966, arguing that, no, in fact, God is very much alive. Um, the ironic thing is, is as much as, as, as this created great, debate and and controversy. At the time, according to Gallup, 96% of Americans believed that God existed. Um, So, you know, most people would have disagreed with that that, uh, cover story at the time. But there was one way in which the predictions were true, and that is organized religion declined in the following decades. And so when you look at religious affiliation, people who attend or are members of a house of worship, again, in the 60s, would have been about 75% of Americans. About three-quarters of Americans were, were either part of a church, a mosque, or synagogue. Whereas in 2020, there was that kind of startling poll that came out that now 47% of Americans belong to a house of worship, less than half. So there has been a decline in, in affiliation. But what's interesting is, is, is when they poll for just the basic question, but do you believe in God, that's remained fairly consistent, still over 90% of Americans, if you ask them yes or no, do you believe in God, will say yes, we believe there is a God. Now as Christians, that shouldn't be surprising to us because we believe that people are made in God's image and part of what that means is that there is an innate longing for spiritual reality in the human heart. We just naturally want to know, is there something more than the material world we live in? There's got to be something more. We look at the stars and we think, this can't have just been here by accident. There must be something more. This is what Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the human heart. Is there a God? What is he like? How can I know him? These are the questions that the Bible claims to answer. It tells us, yes, there is a God. It tells us what he's like. It tells us how we know him. Now, we're talking about the temple, the construction of the temple this morning. And, and, and the temple may seem like just kind of an ancient archaeological novelty. What does it have to do with us today? But the temple actually was answering some of these deep human spiritual questions. And specifically, the question that the temple was answering was not, is there a God? But rather, how can God, considering who he is, how can he live with us? How is that possible? We'll kind, of unpack for, we'll kind of unpack why that was the pressing spiritual question for Israelites. And as we look at this question, how can God live with us, our outline is going to be, how can an infinite God live with a finite people? Second, how can a holy God live with a sinful people? 
And then finally, temporary versus permanent answers. So uh, before we get into our text, it's going to recap really quick. So again, Solomon is now king. One of the questions before he became king is what kind of king is Solomon going to be? Is he going to be like David, who pursued the Lord? Or is he going to be like Saul, who did not pursue the Lord? And the first thing that Solomon does as king is he organizes a worship service for the people of Israel. And so he's like, Solomon is he's a good king. He's a godly king, a faithful king. And that's a good thing because Solomon has one major task in his life, and that is to build the temple. From the chronicler's standpoint, Solomon is important because he is the one who will build the temple. And all the information we're given about Solomon is only important insofar as it leads Solomon to build the temple. There's a lot of other details that the author of First and Second Kings includes that the chronicler doesn't. Because again, Solomon is important because he will build a house for God, for people to meet God and to worship God and to know God. And the reason the temple was so important is that it answered for the Israelites, how can God live with us? How is this possible? Now, we're looking at six chapters this morning, and so there's no way I can go verse by verse if we want to get out before 6 p.m. So you're, you're welcome. I'm not going to try to do that. I'm going to be mostly focusing on the last two chapters, but I want to give an overview at least so you know what's happening in these six chapters. And so in chapter 2, Solomon begins to gather supplies for this temple. He's looking to foreign nations to provide lumber. He actually gets architects from foreign nations. I mean, he's looking for the best of the best to make this a, a marvel of the ancient world, which eventually it is. So that's chapter 2. Chapters 3 and 4 describes the architecture of the temple. And you get a sense that this temple was both incredibly grand and beautiful and majestic, but it was also exact. Solomon's not making this up as he goes. He's given exact, detailed plans. Because if you remember, God cares about how he is worshipped. And then finally, chapters 5 and 7 is the dedication of the temple. So we get to chapters 5. The temple has been built. So chapters 3 and 4 takes 20 years. And then chapters 5 to 7 is, is, is the actual dedication of the temple as it's built. And that's what we're going to be focusing on. But again, the first question we're looking at, how can an infinite God live with a finite people? And this question is actually asked three different times throughout these, these six chapters. First, Solomon asks it in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, as he's, he's writing to a, a, a foreign nation to, to, to ask if he can buy lumber from them. He says, the house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. We're going to build God a temple, a house, but I mean, how is this even possible considering that the universe, the cosmos, is not grand enough to contain God who's created all? He asked it again in chapter 6. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And then again in verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Summarize the question again. How could the Lord of all live in a house that's made by people? How could, he, how could the God, again, whom the stars cannot contain, how could he really be present in a building that's made by people that's relatively small? Now, this is, maybe if you're a more philosophical type, this is a pressing spiritual question for you. For most of us, it's probably not the pressing spiritual question. And for the people of that time, this would not have been a, a question that made sense. But the reason why this was a question for Israel is that from the beginning, God is telling Israel, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not like the gods that the other nations worshipped. So when we look at kind of ancient archaeology and history, we can see that the gods that foreign nations worshipped 
were very different than Yahweh. They were typically local gods. So you had a god of this river, or a god of this town, or a god of this nation, and you could pick up and carry the gods with you if you could pick up the idols. And so these gods oftentimes really looked like kind of people and had people characteristics, and, and they needed sacrifices to feed them. And so there was a reciprocal relationship. You would offer sacrifices to these gods, and then they would bless you with rain and fertility and all these other things. And so from the beginning, Yahweh is telling Israel, I am not like these other gods. These other gods, it's easy to understand how you can have a relationship with this God because he's small. But Yahweh is very different. And so Genesis 1 opens the Bible by telling us that God created all things from nothing. He spoke it into existence. He's not just the God of Israel or this one nation, but he's the one who created all the universe, all the cosmos. When God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt, what he's communicating is, I am more powerful than even the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods. Even the most powerful nation at that time, God says, I, I can do what I want with them. And then finally on Mount Sinai, when God gives the law, and God descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud, and Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, and the commandment to the people is, do not touch the mountain or you will die. God is holy. He is not like us. He is distant. In fact, we cannot approach him. He is infinite. And so for the Israelites, if this is the God who's been revealed to them, it's a very reasonable question to ask, how can you be in relationship with such a God? If the God looks like us, is, is, is limited like us, well, let's say, yeah, I understand. But when God is infinite, how can we have relationship with him? And God's answer was, answer was the temple. How can the God whom heavens cannot contain, how can he be known by people? Because God stoops down to us. Theologically, people would say God condescends to us. So we see this in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Solomon lays out the problem here. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Considering who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, and that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers to this place. Solomon acknowledges, I see the problem here. God, the heavens cannot contain you. Nonetheless, please be present in this house. May you live in this house. May you hear our prayers. And God answers. In chapter 7, verse 1, God answers, yes. As soon as Solomon had finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Solomon has prayed a prayer saying, God, may you inhabit this building, though you are infinite and beyond our scope of imagination. May you nonetheless, in a real way, be present here. And God answers, yes, by sending fire down on the sacrifices and filling the temple with a cloud. And then in case that's not clear enough, God actually tells Solomon in a dream later in verse 12, the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. In case the fire descending wasn't enough, Solomon, I, yes, I will be present in this house. How does a finite people, how can we be in relationship with an infinite God is that the infinite God 
stoops down to us. He condescends to be present in a building, though the highest heavens could not contain him. Now, when I say that God condescends to us, when we use the word condescend, we usually think of it as like kind of a sneering superiority. That's not what's being said here. God condescends to us. He stoops down to us like I will stoop down to my kids. If you have kids or if you've ever spent time with kids, and they run up to you and they're saying something, and I'm like, I, I, can't, I can't understand you. What do you do? You get down on their level. Even the most decent, uh, most basically decent father, not even a good dad, but a basically decent father, would never stoop down to his kid to show his superiority over his kid. What's his goal? His goal is to be able to communicate and to be in relationship with his three-year-old, who happens to be a lot smaller than him. He'll condescend to his three-year-old's language. You're not going to speak to your three-year-old like a doctoral dissertation. You're going to speak in language he understands. God condescends to us. He condescends to us because he wants to be in relationship to us, and we are finite. Think of it like this way. We can all imagine what it's like to hug a tree. It's a small tree, you wrap your arms around it. It's possible. How do you hug a mountain? Maybe you lay down on a mountain face with your arms open, but you're not hugging it. How do you wrap your arms around a mountain? That's the problem with God. Trying to, a finite being, being in a relationship with an infinite being is like trying to hug a mountain. And so God condescends to us. And he, and, he, and he tells Israel, I'll be present in the temple. The temple is God coming near to us, stooping down to be in relationship with us. But here's the important thing. When I stoop down to be with my kid, to communicate better, they do not forget that I actually am much taller than them. <laughs> I'm not actually four foot tall or three and a half feet. I'm not that tall, but I'm taller than that. And I may speak to, to, to Caleb in four-year-old language, but I do know higher level language. The temptation is, is when God stoops to Israel to be present in the temple, the temptation is to forget that God is, in fact, infinite. And he is, in fact, holy. And though he condescends to us to be in relationship to us, he is far beyond us. The temptation is to forget that. And this brings us to one of the central Christian paradoxes of our faith. And that is God is both infinite, he is holy, he is majestic, but yet he's also personal. He's both a paradox is a seeming contradiction that actually points us to a deeper truth. And there's a tension between that, between a God whom the highest heavens cannot contain, who is holy and infinite, but yet who is personal, is in relationship with us. And if we don't hold both of these in tension, we'll move towards misunderstanding or even heresy, false teaching. And most non-Christian beliefs about God tend towards one or the other. So the pagan nations had a God who was very near, but was not infinite. Had gods who were, you know, just kind of like really strong humans. But they were not the infinite creators of all. On the other hand, you had someone like Aristotle, who posited a, a, an unmoved mover. Or let me, Star Wars, the force. It's an infinite field that holds everything together, binds us together. But you can't have a relationship with the force. It's not personal. 
Those typically non-Christian responses move towards either a God who is very relatable but very small or some kind of divine energy field. But as Christians, we say it's both. We hold these together. God is infinite, but he's also stooped down to be in a relationship with us. And he did this in the Old Testament through the temple, where though he is God of all, he made his presence to be known. Again, to lose either side of this paradox leads to misunderstanding. If we have God's closeness without his infinite holiness, it may give us comfort, but it's never going to lead us to obedience. It's never going to thrill our hearts or inspire us. On the flip side, if, if we have a God who is very holy and very infinite, but yet not close to us, we may obey, but we're never going to love him. We need both. So my question to you is, which do you lean towards? Most of us probably lean towards one or the other. Maybe we, we lean towards a God who's holy, majestic, and great, but the thought that he really hears my prayers or that he's really present to me in the inward parts of my being may seem strange. Maybe you're the other side where you recognize that God is close, but you forget that he's also holy. It's helpful to know which we lean towards so we can, again, aim to hold both in balance. Because if we don't, we may be worshiping someone, but it's not God. So, how can an infinite people, I'm sorry, how can an infinite God live with a finite people through the temple? Because God condescends to us. Second question, how can a holy God live with a sinful people? How can a holy God live with a sinful people? Now that first question, how can an infinite God live with a finite people, would have been a strange question because the gods of the ancient world were infinite. So it's easy to understand how to relationship with them. This second question also would have been a strange question for the people of that time. How can a holy God live with a sinful people? Because ancient gods didn't give ethical commandments like the Ten Commandments. Ethics was a realm of philosophy, and religion was a realm of cultic practice, sacrifices. But the gods didn't ask for a wholehearted obedience to, to, to commands and laws they laid out. They just weren't the same. If a god was angry, again, gods at that time, the way they viewed gods, the ancient pagan gods, if a god was needing a sacrifice, it wasn't because you'd broken divine commands or sinned against his holiness, it was because maybe you annoyed them. The gods oftentimes look more like humans than like God. So to ask how can a holy god be in relationship with a sinful people, just it wouldn't have made sense. But Yahweh, throughout the scriptures, is showing that he's a God who doesn't just demand sacrifice. He demands all of our lives. He demands obedience. He's laid out a law of how we ought to live. And God is, is holy. He's not like the foreign gods who are petty and moody and look like humans and their best and their worst. As the Bible says, God is light. and him is no darkness. So the question for Israel, and frankly the fundamental question for every human is, Considering what we have done, whether we think we've done little sins or large sins, if God is light and there is no darkness in him, how can we be in relationship with him? That is the fundamental question every human has to wrestle with. And it's funny, you know, that was a strange question for the ancient times, and it's become a strange question again. And it's like history is repeating itself. Ninety-plus percent of people may believe in God. That does not mean they believe in the true God. And the God that we tend towards in our current Time and place is a therapeutic God, a God who comforts us when we're sad, but not a God who's holy, who demands obedience. And that's why, we, you know, God is a God who brings judgment. It's not very popular because judgment's not very therapeutic. But the God of the Bible is the one who is holy, 
So that is the question we have to ask, whether it makes sense to us or not. Considering what we have done, considering who God is, how can we live with such a God? And the answer to the Israelites, again, was the temple. Look at chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and return from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The primary function of the temple was to be a house of sacrifice. It wasn't like a church where we come to worship. It was a place of sacrifice. What were the animals being killed for? They were being killed as substitutes. And so our sin deserves punishment, deserves death. And so God initiated a way for which we don't have to die for our sin. It was, okay, these animals can be slaughtered in your place. They're still cost. Animals are made by God and valued by him, but they're not made in God's image. So there's a substitute so you can have sin forgiven. But there's a second part to this coin. It's not, I mean, God, these sacrifices weren't default. Like, they're applied automatically no matter what you do. It was as God's people repented, there were sacrifices that were available to cover their sin. And we get here one of the most clear depictions of what biblical repentance looks like in verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, turn to God in prayer, and then turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive. It's as God's people repent, then the sacrifices are applied for the, are, are applied for the forgiveness of sins. What's important is that repentance isn't just feeling bad for sin. That's how we think of repentance a lot of times. Like, I feel bad of what I did. I'm repenting. That's not repentance. The, the crucial ingredient in repentance is turning. Turning from sin towards God. And if there's no repentance, I'm sorry, if there's no turning, there's no repentance. It doesn't matter if we're weeping over our sin, if we're broken over our sin, if there's no turning away from that sin, there is no repentance and therefore there's no forgiveness. The answer that God gives to his people is the temple. Whereas God's people, if they repent genuinely from the heart, God has provided a substitute so that they can be in relationship with the holy God. So these are the two questions that the temple answers. How can an infinite God live with a finite people? How can a holy God live with a sinful people? But these answers are always and only temporary. The temple, as an answer to these questions, only temporarily answered. This brings us to our third point, temporary versus permanent answers. Now, I have a 1998 Chrysler minivan. Not to be apocalyptic, but it could literally die any day. I could walk out of this church building, and it could be dead. It's just that age of a car where things start breaking, and it's going to be worth far more than it costs to fix it. So when I take my, my, my minivan to the mechanic, I literally tell them, do the minimum to ensure that it drives and doesn't explode, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to be in danger, but, like, if a tire's flat, just replace the one tire, give me a used tire if you have them, right? Like, do the minimum to keep me running because the car's going to die any day now. So 
when they do those temporary fixes, they're, not, they're, they're, they're patching. They're temporary fixes. They're not permanent fixes. Permanent fix would be a lot more drastic. It would involve me buying a new car. <laughs> but my goal is to get as much mileage as I can out of my minivan before I have to do that. The temple, similarly, was a temporary fix. It was a temporary answer to these deep questions of how can we who are finite be in relationship with the infinite God? How who are we who are all of us sinful be in relationship with a God who is holy? The temple gave a temporary answer, but it was always, always, always pointing forward to the permanent answer that will come in the person of Jesus Christ. I've said this before, but I can't, I can't say it enough. The Bible's about Jesus. The Old Testament and the New. It's not like Old Testament was plan A with God. He's going to try to do this with Israel. That failed. Well, I'm going to bring Jesus, plan B, in New Testament. It was always about Jesus Christ from the beginning. And what that means is if we read any part of the Bible, whether that's the New Testament or the Old Testament, and we're not seeing how it's pointing to Jesus, then we're misunderstanding that part of the Bible. We're, misunder- we're misinterpreting that text. And so the temple is this permanent answer, but it's pointing forward to what would be the permanent answer to these questions. And that was Jesus Christ. I mentioned that the temple was, uh, was God's condescension, condescending, stooping down to be near us. But the greatest act of condescension was the incarnation, where Jesus Christ, who from all eternity existed at the right hand of the Father, reigned in glory, left his throne to become a servant even unto death. There's no greater stooping that God can do to come from his throne and become not a great man on earth, but a servant. The incarnation was when God came as near to us as he can by becoming one of us. Answers definitively, how can an infinite God be in a relationship with finite people? Well, he becomes one of us, taking on human flesh. And what gets really interesting, if you can follow this theological thread... Again, the temple is God's infinite presence in a finite people. It's his presence among us. But Jesus refers to himself as a temple. This gets interesting. John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, verse 21. The Jews demanded, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up again. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. I'd always read that and be like, I don't know what's going on here. That makes no sense. Again, the temple is God's infinite presence among a finite people. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the temple. I am God's presence among you. As near to you as God can get. It's me. The temple was a temporary answer pointing forward to Jesus, who would be a far better temple, a far better presence of God with us. The temple was great. But even in the temple where God's presence was, God's presence only inhabited what was called the Holy of Holies, which was a small part of the temple. And only one person once a year could enter that on the Day of Atonement. No one else could enter the actual presence of God. But yet in Jesus Christ, anyone can access the presence of God if they believe in Jesus and follow him. All of a sudden, God's presence has come near to us, where before only one man once a year For one day, now the infinite presence of God is present among us. And before the temple was in Jerusalem, right? So if if you were a foreign nation, well, good luck. 
you'd have to leave your country and come to another country. Or if you lived in the country in Israel, you'd have to leave your town and come to the city if you wanted to be in the presence of God. But yet, where is the presence of God now? Well, if his body is the temple, wherever his body is, which is the church. This is some pretty abstract thinking, but man, when, you, when it hits the ground, where the church meets, the infinite presence of God meets with finite people. When we come together to worship him on a Sunday morning, every church across Louisville that gathers in the name of Jesus, confessing him as Lord, the infinite God is present there. An eternal work is being done. Jesus is the new and better temple. As the infinite God comes to finite people. But Jesus is also the new and better temple in that he provides a sacrifice that's once and for all. Again, the point of the temple, answering the question of how can a sinful people be in a relationship with a holy God, well, there are sacrifices. But these sacrifices were always temporary and they could never really atone for sin. Why? Because an animal is not a person. You can't substitute an animal for a person. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 1 to 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I was talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And this is the important part. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because again, an animal can't substitute for a human. It was only by God's grace that he allowed that system to exist, to provide a way for humans to be in relationship with God. But as Hebrews chapter 9 says, but Christ entered once for all into the holy places. That's temple language, the holy of holies where God inhabited. Christ entered into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus gave a sacrifice that was his own self, substituting for us. And so that means that we who place our faith in Jesus, when we repent, when we turn from our sin, when we trust in Jesus, that means all our sin is covered. It's an eternal redemption. And so we don't need to do penance. We don't need to go on holy pilgrimages, flaying ourselves with whips. It's been taken care of. There is no condemnation for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice was once and for all. So Christ is the new and better temple. He is, the, he is the ultimate answer to these deep questions of how do we know God? How can we be in relationship with God considering who he is, considering who we are? How can we know him? How can we live with him? Jesus is the ultimate answer to that. This was a pretty abstract, high-level thinking sermon. I admit that. It's good to have these every now and then. It stretches our brain. What do we do with this? The point is never just to think lofty thoughts, but we want to be transformed to look more like our Lord. What do we do with this? Well, my first encouragement is just to think on these things. Again, these are some of the deepest questions. The question of who is God and how can I know him? There is, just, there is no more fundamental question that you can ask 
and there is an evil one, and there is your flesh that wants to keep us from thinking on these, and we'll do anything to smother those questions. We'll smother them with entertainment. It'll smother them with just the busyness of life. It'll smother them with the good things of life. Anything to keep us from thinking on these things. So my first encouragement is just take some time this week. Practice some solitude and quiet reflection and reflect on the wonder of the God whom heaven cannot contain coming to us, being near to us, finite, frail, limited people, that we can speak and such an infinite God stoops because he wants to be in relationship with us. Reflect on that. Reflect on the wonder of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, that we all know the depth of how deep that sin goes in our own hearts, and yet Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. And there is no condemnation. And God is our Father and treats us as his children. But second, go and, go and tell. We are evangelicals in the sense that we believe in the euangelion, which is a Greek word for the good news. But good news is meant to be told. It's news. We live in a world that the eternity of God has been implanted on the heart of every man, woman, and child. And every person wonders about eternity, about transcendence, about meaning and purpose. And the Bible has given us the answers. In Jesus Christ is the answer to every searching heart. And you have neighbors and coworkers, friends and family who are asking these questions. And the answers come to us in Jesus Christ. Go and tell. Not only do they need to hear it, but our Lord has commanded us to go. In Jesus Christ, the infinite God has come to a finite people to live with us. In Jesus Christ, a holy God has come near to a sinful people and made us his own. We have no better news to tell. Let's pray. Jesus, may you set our hearts and our minds on fire for the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of Jesus that though he was God, he came to us and came as near as possible and he took our sins upon himself so that we can be in relationship with the creator God who made us for whom we were created. Lord, may we know you better and love you more fully and walk in the wonder and the grace of your presence all our days. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.